You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. And I'm Simon. And um, what did you think of Into the Dalek? Oh, you were going to go off and have a drink. You thought I was going to do some kind of opening spiel there, and I didn't. I asked you a question straight away. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't expect to be have to give an opinion so early in the podcast. Well, don't worry about it then. Um, well, in that case, let's move on to something else, shall we? Go on. No, I'm not. Give me your opinion. Now, 30 seconds. <clears throat> Nearest thing to a classic we've had in the new series. Nearest thing to a classic series story, you mean? I, I uh, no. I just think it was a pretty much a classic story. Really, I, I get when people say that. Oh, that was a classic. I don't always think that, but I think that really was a classic story. Really? Mm. Gosh, I don't think it was. You thought it was like the best story since it came back? No. Okay. No, but I think it just had. All the hallmarks of a really classic Dalek story. All right, actually, yes, to be precise, more of a classic Dalek story. So, of all the Dalek stories, there's ones you pick out which you would say are landmark stories within all the Dalek stories, and I think that was a landmark story. More so than, say, Asylum of the Daleks, then? Yeah. Okay. Go on, then. You've got to go a bit further than that. What Anything particular about it that made you say that? In as much as it it was the Dalek being a Dalek, and well, obviously not. Being but wasn't a Dalek, the Dalek but... being a Dalek in Dalek, the Christopher Eccleston one? Yeah. So what? Oh, I elevate... suppose. Yeah. No, you're. You're. Yeah. You're absolutely I was right. Gonna make was a, little, a landmark one. I was yes. going to make a little pun there. Yeah. I was going to say what elevated this above that. <laughs> ah, very good. Did anything elevate this above that? Yeah, I think it, it it just had vision, and um, I think Phil Ford and Stephen Moffat. You didn't find the vision impaired. <laughs> I, this I'm, is going to go on and on. At some point, I'm going to stop doing Dalek puns. Ah, <laughs> um, oh, we'll have to talk about it all later. But um, I just felt like everything was done right, apart from one particular scene that I'll talk about later. No, talk about that scene now. Let's get it out of the way. Okay, the brain scene. The brain scene that actually somebody on Facebook pointed out that it looked like an eighties schools program, and I know what they mean. It was it was. When you say the brain scene, you mean the bit where he was standing in front of it. Yes, and it was obviously a model behind him. Yeah, yeah. And is that what you mean? That effect. It was the way. It was more the way it was realised. Yeah, it was the only thing that pulled me out of the being completely sucked into it and Um. loving every moment of it. Did you not have a problem with? For example, my problem, in those terms, the thing that almost pulled me out of it was the whole soldier thing. Like, at the start, you have the stuff with Danny Pink, Mm. and there's that bit of dialogue where Clara says to him, uh, he says, I'm not like other soldiers, I'm, Mm. uh, you know, 
more sensitive or whatever. Mm. And she says, oh, what you mean you kill people, then you cry. Right. And then at the end of the story, and because obviously you can see where this is going to go in the coming weeks, right? And at the end of the story, the girl, um, Journey Blue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Soldier Blue, yeah. Yeah, comes out. Oh, mm, mm. comes after the TARDIS mm. and says, "Take me with you." And the Doctor says, "You're probably really nice, but you're a soldier." Yeah, and I know what you're saying. The juxtaposition's almost too close, isn't it? It just felt. No, I can see why they did it. Yeah, he if he's gonna turn around and say, "No, I'm not taking you because you're a soldier," mm. then in two weeks' time, you've got Danny Pink, mm. who is going to, you know upset the apple cart in those regards mm. and then presumably for the rest of the series if Danny Pink's aboard mm. that's going to be a running theme the Doctor being unhappy with the fact that he's got a soldier on board yep okay so this is a new Doctor and you know each new Doctor will have different foibles from all the other Doctors but to say no I'm not going to take you aboard because you're a soldier this is the guy who fights you know, side by side with unit when mm. he has to, mm. you know, and he, and th- th- that whole thing during Russell T. Davis's era, you turn your companions into soldiers. Mm. It, for him to say, no, I'm not going to take you with me because you're a soldier, just purely because Stephen Moffat wants to set up that sort of mm. story arc, mm. that character arc across the series. Yeah, yeah. It just felt clumsy. Okay. And that's, and that to me was the, bit like your bit with mm. the model and the special effect that was a bit that to me sort of nearly pulled me out i thought the clumsy. the danny pink side of that worked better than the the one with the actual soldiers in a funny way i i know what you were saying because when she wanted to join on board in order that he would he could just say that sentence of sorry i'm sure you really nice but you're a you're a soldier it don't i don't think it needed that necessarily yeah, yeah. Um, that was that was almost a step too far, you know. Talk about hammering the point home. Absolutely, that yeah. was it. Mm. It was, it wasn't. The rest of the story was subtle. There were lots of subtle things, mm. and this is what I want to come to in a minute. Mm. All mm. the because from a storytelling perspective, there are certain things you look out for, and certain things you're expecting, and there are certain things where you say, "Are they going to exceed my expectations?" And on almost all the occasions, they either exceeded or sidestepped, or in some way surprised my expectations. But that was the only bit where my expectations, if you will, were let down. Mm, mm. Okay, let's talk about Danny Pink. Mm. So, that uh, slightly odd, having a pre-titles bit, where the Doctor's travelling by himself, and then goes off to fetch Clara, Mm. after they've said to him, you know, he walks into this spaceship and this Journey Blue says to her well, uncle, wasn't it? Uncle and niece? Mm, mm. And this guy saved me and he says, well, that's all very well, but this is a secure ship. We're going to have to kill him anyway. Mm. And they don't kill him because he's a doctor, so they take him to see the patient. But mm. does that does that give him carte blanche to get back into his spaceship and fly <laughs> off and fetch somebody else who's neither a doctor <laughs> nor a nurse nor anything yeah, and bring her yeah. back so now you've got two strangers on board this spaceship mm. both of whom are insecure that felt kind of again i can see why they did it <laughs> yeah i don't know this is going to sound like a 
this is going to sound like me ragging on the episode now. <laughs> it just, that felt slightly odd as well. Yeah, yeah. But I liked it. Yeah. Do you know, there's sometimes when something like that happens, you just think the line where the Irish guy, comedian doing the straight part, right? Mm. I can't remember the actor's name. Yeah, no, the guy from um, Tires from Spaced. Yeah, I can never remember his that's name. That's the one, that's yeah. the one. Yeah. The bit where he says, right, you may have saved money, but there's a secure ship, you're going to have to die anyway. Mm. You could just have not had that line. Mm. And if you'd not had that line, uh, you know, you could still have had the bit where the doctor says, well, I'm a doctor, okay, we'll take you to see our patient, but in that case, I need my assistant. Yeah. And that would all still have worked. Yeah, isn't this kind of this Stephen Moffat thing of assuming that the viewer would just assume... I mean, this is the doctor who can walk into a situation and within five minutes he's 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 convinced everyone that he's perfectly safe and they should let him help them. So I think as a, as a viewer, as a fan, you accept that. Yeah, I think the thing of it is, for the one-time casual viewer who's watching it, the bit where he says you're going to have to kill you anyway, oh, I'm a doctor, oh, we'll take you to the patient instead... That's a great little funny little thing, yeah, right? Okay, yeah. And they don't care. Mm. By the time it gets to the point where the doctor goes off and gets Clara, because you've had a whole sort of five-minute sequence in Cole Hill School, and then the way the doctor turns up is brilliant and unexpected. She opens the cupboard and there's the TARDIS. You know, that's great. And that's a deflection and it's amusing mm. and it's witty. Mm. Mm. And when I say it's witty, I don't mean witty in terms of being funny but i'm witty in terms of taking your expectations and confounding them because you know throughout that whole sequence that somewhere along the line she's going to have to get in the tardis and join the doctor on this space station Mm. but you don't expect it to be there and you know by those means so it's witty yes it's taking your expectation and confounding it and yes it all works for a general audience it all works and for a fan one who doesn't question these things too much (laughs) <laughs> which isn't which isn't really me, but, you know, I write reviews, so I have mm. to look at everything. As somebody said the other day, what is it? I'm like Neo in The Matrix. <laughs> yeah, Simon, <laughs> I listen to that podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> but what I mean is, it, it all works. Mm. And in the end, it doesn't really matter. No. Because uh, as far as I'm concerned, if the, 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 if the dialogue and the plot point fulfills its function Mm. and it's amusing and when I say amusing I don't necessarily mean funny but I mean entertaining if it entertains you and it fulfills its function then that's fine in the end Mm. Mm. so there that's just a couple of minor quibbles but then now I want to get into the good stuff now I'm you got it off your chest no 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 okay let's not get into the good stuff yet the whole Danny Pink sequence at the start yep what do you think of him I think he's great Oh. And I didn't expect him to be great. I thought he was going to be an irritant. Why did you think he was going to be an irritant? In as much as he was going to be obvious as the love interest for Clara. Mm. And it was all going to be seeded because obviously something, there's going to be more drama down the line. So, you know, tugging at the heartstrings type of stuff. But I didn't expect to like the actor and the character so much. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Well, they did something astonishing, didn't they? Considering Doctor Who really is kind of still children's TV, Mm. the bit in the classroom Mm. where the kids are asking the questions, Mm. have you ever shot anybody? 
I'm a soldier. Yeah. You know, I'll leave that to your imagination. Mm. You know, I'm a soldier. I go to a place of conflict where there are other soldiers mm. who are fighting mm. on the other side from me. What do you think? Yeah. Have I ever shot anybody? <laughs> yeah. And then when the other kid asked the question, have you ever shot anybody that wasn't a soldier? I thought the tear was perhaps a bit too much. Yeah. I don't think we really needed to see the tear. But then again, this, like I just said, this is still basically a kids' program, right? Mm, mm. And if you hadn't done the tear, mm. I don't think the eight-year-olds and the 12-year-olds... I 12 think he pulled it off with the acting, though. Yeah, I don't think... that it, Without the tear, I don't think eight-year-olds would have understood mm. what that scene meant. But no. with the tear, mm. even if you don't understand quite it had what... To in, it had to pay off the joke, didn't it, with Clara's misdemeanour when she mentions it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because when she says, well, you shoot people and then you cry, yeah. and we've actually just seen it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that could have been done another way. You know, it could have it been could, just, yeah. you kill people, then you feel bad about it. Yeah, I think... Yeah, okay. I can't... I I, I think the tear may come up later in the series. I think... That there's going to be an episode mm. around about two thirds of the way through the series set on Agaten, and that <laughs> the tear, which will have been saved, will be what saves Danny Pink from the uh, pyramid on Agaten. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. They're not going to sing Seven Tears uh, by um, the Gumbay Dance Band. How does that go? I, I can't remember. Seven tears are pouring through the ocean. Like that. Hey! That I just wanted to get you to Truly it. terrible record. No, it's a great record. <sighs> I suppose you're the kind of person who didn't like Boney M. Oh, I love Boney M. Oh, well, there you go. Seven tears. That's just a Boney M song by another band. Oh, I don't know. It's just, it's that bloke who looked like Brian Jack singing with, with his hair was too long. Oh, I can't remember. I have um, no idea what they're talking about. No, okay. what, what they looked like or anything. <laughs> no. What were we talking about? Danny Pink. Yes. Yeah. You know, when you said you thought it was going to be an irritant because he was just basically being flown in to be a love interest. Yes. And also, maybe a potential heartthrob for teenage girls who are still watching Doctor Who, mm. who still need their fix of, not David Tennant, but somebody in that position mm. in mm. the series. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. But then they bring him in and they did something spectacular with him, right? Right. Because, like you just said, he could have just been another teacher at the school. Mm. But he's not. And the, the, Okay, this he's a soldier thing. He's going to have repercussions further down the line. But the fact that they've started off with, have you ever killed anybody who wasn't a soldier? And the answer to that is obviously yes. This is a guy with issues. Mm. Mm. And they're not the kind of issues that Doctor Doctor Who companions usually have. Oh, lots of monsters are going back to my childhood and stealing my childhood memories and using them against me. It's not those kind of issues. It's real-world issues. Mm, mm. This is a guy... Because you don't... It's use... dodgy ground as well, considering, you know... The, uh... What's going on in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But they don't usually do this in Doctor Who. All the things that they usually do in Doctor Who, and I'm basically thinking Rosalind Davis, because last week we talked about Clara, right? And mm. I said she's a character without kind of an ostentatious character idiosyncrasy mm. that becomes her character in the same way as they Rose did and Martha did and Donna did. Mm. Right. So the, generally speaking, 
And Amy was the same and Rory was the same. When you get down to the nitty gritty of it, Amy was the gobby Scottish one. Mm. And Rory was the sort of henpecked house husband who gets to come in the TARDIS and gets to be the voice of sanity. Yeah. When, you know, the 11th Doctor and Amy are sort of kicking their heels and having fun (laughs) being chased by monsters. Mm. But in comes Danny Pink and it looks for all the world like this is going to be somebody who's bringing real world drama Mm. into this fantasy series. Yeah, already a totally rounded character. Yeah, all these things that Stephen Moffat's accused of never being able to do. Mm. Because... Going back again to what I said last week, you know, I said Stephen Moffat does do this stuff, but because he wraps it up in witty comments, it generally speaking, I mean, this sounds patronising, goes over the head of people. It's there to be seen if you want to see it, but if you don't like the witty dialogue, you're not going to look any deeper than that. Mm. And, you know, Amy was the gobby Scottish one. Mm. And Rory, even though he was the henpecked husband, it was the actor, really, he brought who brought the reality in to the mm, part. Mm. But here's somebody who's a damn fine actor, from what we've seen so far, mm. but who's also been given a fully rounded character to play with as well. Mm. Stephen Moffat has obviously taken some of the criticisms and criticisms to heart. I don't know whether specifically he's been out and said, oh my God, they're not complaining about that again. Right, I'll do something <laughs> different next time. But you know what I mean? Yeah. He's, he, he's taken the... He's either taken the criticisms to heart or else he's looked at his own work and said, right, let's try it a different way this time. And he's still writing Stephen Moffat Doctor Who. You know, people say, oh, every story he ever does is timey-wimey. That's patently not true. Mm. I was only watching The Bells of St. John the other day, actually. There's Mm. no timey-wimey in The Bells of St. John whatsoever. And if you're going to look at Stephen Moffat's stories in terms of the timey-wimey aspect, this episode. I mean, this it's a Phil Ford story, but obviously Stephen Moffat's had some input, as we yeah. saw by his name being on the screen. Yeah. It doesn't have timey-wimey inverted commas, but what it does have is the same rug removal that you get with timey-wimey, mm. where Stephen Moffat throws things in to sort of throw the viewers off the scent, to sort of give the viewers a sit back in your seat and think, oh, what the is going on here Mm. and by having the doctor arrive on a spaceship and you know we're gonna kill you oh you're a doctor we'll show you the patient and then the next thing you know you're in coal hill school Mm. doctor's nowhere to be seen Mm. and it's not just a throwaway scene which it could easily have been it could have been a throwaway scene with clara meeting danny pink it could have been 30 seconds long and then we could have been back to the spaceship but no it's i don't know how long it was but it's a good four or five minutes yeah yeah that's an example of Stephen Moffat doing the Stephen Moffat thing, taking the viewers' expectations and throwing them out the window, you know, their expectations about how drama works. Mm. And the way he then brings Clara into the story with the Doctor, and the way he pays it off at the end, like I said, is quite obvious with the whole line about not taking you as a soldier. But it all works. That's how drama works. But the thing is, Stephen Moffat's still doing those Stephen Moffat tricks. He's still doing the bit where you suddenly go into Coal Hill School and you stay there for five minutes instead of leaving <laughs> again. And oh, do you know what? A couple of other things I've seen on Facebook and around and about since I watched it. 
Because one thing I've seen on forums is a lot of people who hated the last five years with Matt Smith saying, oh, it's Stephen Moffat, he can't help himself, always needs to put in timey-wimey, always needs to put in too much stuff, always needs to put in too much stuff with the sonic (laughs) screwdriver, and he always needs to... Another mess of a series, that's what I saw. Too much arc stuff, and, uh, oh, the other thing is, you know, too much glib dialogue. Mm. And all these people are now saying, oh no, Into the Dalek was brilliant because it didn't have any of those things. Well, I'm sorry, but the bit where they go to Coal Hill School for five minutes yeah. is just as much of the timey-wimey as any timey-wimey story. The bit where the Doctor fixes the Dalek with his sonic screwdriver mm. is just as much having the sonic screwdriver as a magic wand yeah. as it is in The Power of Three or any other story. The bit where the first soldier dies, yep, and they follow him down the tube, and when they get there, the doctor says he's the top layer. If anybody wants to say a few words, is just as glib as anything Matt Smith ever said. Yep. And what was the other thing I said? Uh, Can't remember. There were four no, things. Weren't no, there? no. Yeah. There was something else as well. Yeah. It's all there. It's still Stephen Moffat, Doctor Who. Yep. It's just ever so slightly different. Mm. The and the difference is not in the ingredients, mm. but it's in the the flavour. Yeah, it's yeah. not in the ingredients; it's in the manner of cooking. Yeah. yeah. If you take the same ingredients and roast them, yeah. you get a different result as if you take the same ingredients and fry them. Yeah. And that's all that's happening here. You've got exactly the same ingredients. Instead of roasting them, he's frying them. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's still Doctor Who. Stephen Moffat style. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody like me who loves Stephen Moffat Doctor Who, it's still just as brilliant as ever it was. Mm. And all the writers, and this is the thing that I've found amazing about the last five years that I didn't find especially amazing about the first five years. In Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who, which I loved mm. and I thoroughly enjoyed, but he ran out after two years he ran out of having anything left to say. Mm. Mm. And he didn't quite manage to find writers who could live up to his vision of Doctor Who. Mm. You know, in the Russell T. Davis era, apart from the Stephen Moffat episodes, almost every other guest episode, whether it was entirely rewritten by Russell T. Davis or not, generally speaking, was a bit weak. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at Look at series three when you've got the Lazarus experiment and 42 and, you know, quite a few episodes in that series, actually, even if you look at the Shakespeare Code and even things like Gridlock, they're not spectacular in the way they could be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, none of those episodes were bad. No. no. And sometimes it wasn't the script, but sometimes it was the production. Because it just felt like it was on a treadmill a bit. I'm reluctant to say half-baked, but they were. It kind of was. I mean, you look at 42, for example, because that's a, that's, mm. that would, I would say is a brilliant example. I, I yeah. The moment I, I think, read the synopsis for that, I thought that was going to be brilliant. And, and it's got a great, I think it's got a good script. Mm. A, but the script perhaps needs just that little bit extra. The cast isn't great. No, no, the cast is good. Do you think? Yeah, Michelle but Collins? directed. Michelle mm. Collins might not be the best actress in the world, mm. but if you tease a decent performance out of her, she can give it. Yeah. 
And Anthony Flanagan's in that. He's a wonderful actor, mm. and I think that's the worst I've ever seen him. Mm. And these things make the script look bad. And Graham Harper directs it. Yeah, Everybody loves yeah. Graham Harper, mm. and he makes it look spectacular. And he has his moments. The bit where Martha's on that shuttle going away from the spaceship, that bit's fantastic. Mm. But what he does elsewhere lets it down. And you don't actually feel this whole thing of it happening within 42 minutes. You're not actually aware of that. No, it's, that was kind of added on too late in the day to really make it a thing, I think. Mm, mm. I think if you really wanted to do that idea, you had to go in with that idea so that you could make that a fundamental part of the story Yeah. yeah. rather than it being something that's bolted on afterwards. Mm, mm, absolutely. Mm. Anyway, yes. after a slight diversion into season, Series 3, <laughs> to bring it back to my point, I think in Stephen Moffat's era, mm. right from the word go, I think all the guest writers have lived up mm. to what Stephen Moffat's been doing. I think even probably the worst episodes of the last five years have been The Rings of Akaten and The Curse of the Black Spot. Yep, yep. I think both of those episodes would have looked good in series three or series four. Mm, mm, yeah. And the thing is, not just the writers, the directors are really knocking it out of the park as well. Mm. Even Victory of the Daleks, which is probably the worst directed episode of the last five years, I still think the performances are brilliant in that, and that's the director's first priority. And even the way that episode looks, it might not look as spectacular as, say, the girl who waited or the god complex but it still looks a hell of a lot more spectacular than the lazarus experiment or gridlock yeah yeah you know and those weren't badly directed no. it's just that it's all gone up another notch mm. and to bring it back to into the dalek guest writer phil ford writing his first script for stephen moffat absolutely knocks it out of the park yeah yeah and ben wheatley directing astonishing because he takes a cast Mm. that isn't a spectacular cast and gets performances out of them that are unshowy. This is the important thing. It's a great cast before you even... As soon as I saw who was in it, I was thinking, wow. That's really? really good. Yeah, the, um, the main girl, Soldier Blue. Um, I can't remember. I, I knew her from Fresh Meat and I've seen her in... Um, there was a drama about a true story about uh, a girl who disappeared and they found her dead in her flat. Was it about 18 months later or something like that? Oh, really? I cannot remember her name at oh, all, okay. but I've seen her perform before, and she is amazing. Right, but what she does here that's spectacular mm. is she's unshowy. Yes. Because it's so tempting, especially for the director. Yeah. Not because once the script's written, the script's written, mm. it's so tempting for the director to come in and to get everybody to show off because mm. this is their one 45 minutes in Doctor Who, mm. and they know it's going out on a Saturday tea time to 7 million people. Yep. It's so tempting for the director to say, right, knock it out of the park. It's so much more difficult. And you know what? In The Voyage of the Damned, I thought this is what Kylie Minogue did, and I didn't think she'd get enough credit for it. It's so much more difficult to tone your performance right down to let the story take centre stage. Yeah, yeah. And that's what they did last night. In Into the Dalek, all those actors let the story be the star of the story yeah, yeah. rather than being the star of the story themselves. <laughs> the guy from Spaced, and again, we've not got a cast list in front of us, yeah. 
it would have been so expected. Mm. You know, most of the audience, if the anybody, great. if anybody in the audience had known that the guy in space who does um, tires, yeah, tires, yeah, was going to be in that episode, they've ex- they'd have expected a tires performance from him, right? Yeah, and he just played it completely straight, and he didn't, he didn't go off. Over the top no, at any point. No, no, no. Yep. He just let that part be that part. Mm, mm. And that was brilliant. Mm. I haven't let you hardly speak for ages. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, I tend to go off on one when I get started, don't I? <laughs> yeah, but it was a really special episode. Um, when it really, I mean, I love the Danny Pink thing. And as I say, I didn't expect to really warm to his character in the way I did. I think the casting is perfect. He's got he he has the air of a warm person, but at the same time you can perfectly see him joining the army because he would be doing it for the right reasons. Um but moving on from that, the moment And he's serious as well. Because yeah. when the characters when the actors come in to play recurring characters mm. or companions or whatever you very rarely get that amount of seriousness in the performance. Mm. You know, because you can have the humour as well, but because you're a star of the show, you tend to play it in a starry fashion. Mm. And he so played that not oh, in a starry was, fashion. He was very naturalist, naturalistic, mm. is that a word? No, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he was, you know, when he was being questioned about what he'd done over the weekend, I mean, it was, it was, his reactions were perfectly normal. The girl behind the desk wasn't so great. And, no. and that girl who's turned up again for some reason. I don't know if there's a reason why she's turned up again. Michelle Gomez, her heaven thing. Uh, no, 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 no. The uh, the schoolgirl, because she was the same girl who uh, appeared in the last episode saying, go on then. To, it's his sister. To Clara. It's his younger sister. Is it? Possibly. Yes. Who, I who's think younger sister? Danny Pink. What, actually in the story or as an actor? In the story. Oh, in the story? Yeah, I do believe so. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I think maybe you're not supposed to find this out yet. Oh, bugger. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. I think in the end credit, actually, it just um, acknowledges her by her first name. Right. So you don't know she's a pink until later. Because also, I can't remember now because I wasn't watching out for it. And I should have done because I knew this was going to be a thing. Is she white? or no. is she? No, she's, she's black. She's black, yeah. Yeah, she's his younger sister, definitely. Ah. Oh, I've just spoiled it for people listening on the podcast, because yeah. I think we don't find that out until episode five right. or six. okay. It makes sense, because I was thinking, why why have they given her a second bite of the apple as an actress, you know, to oh, do yeah. that as well? no. Yes, because I remember now. Or is she now. the only schoolgirl with a voice in that school? Was she in the first episode, Deep Breath? Yeah, she was. She was the one who faced up to Clara. Well, you know, you know when Clara passed out and she got a vision of the school, of the classroom? And there was a child saying, go on then. Right, Same girl. right, 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 yeah. right. I've forgotten all about that. Yes, because Danny Pink's sister's in the first episode and he doesn't turn up till the second episode. Right. But his sister's in that one too. And you don't find out she's his sister until, I think, maybe episode five or six. Oh. So we really shouldn't be rattling on about this anymore. So let's move on. No, okay. Spoiler We've spoiled it already. I know. Too late it's now. Terrible. But I think the point where I knew this was kind of a nine out of ten type episode... Uh, was where they passed through the eye of the Dalek and you had that wonderful... It was Fantastic Voyage. The effect. Yeah, yeah people have been saying it's the Avengers and and, uh, and and yeah, it is the Avengers, but it's Fantastic Voyage. Well, that's what it set out to be. Yeah. Basically. And it was gorgeously, beautifully... That shot of um, Peter Capaldi... You couldn't have done that with any other Doctor. 
uh, maybe John Pertwee. With, uh, with his arm going through arm. and then his face going through because, you know, he's not he's not your stereotypical, cosmetically pleasing doctor. He's a bit odd looking and that was just... He did... Oh, it was... Ben Wheatley did some really nice things really simply. Yeah. And that's the mark of a good director. One who, going back to that same expression again, one who doesn't show off, mm. but mm. everything he does is in service to the story. See, this is my bugbear with Caves of Androzani. Mm. To me, on Caves of Androzani, as a director is showing off, there's a lot of things in Caves of Androzani that don't need to be there. There's a whole sequence where there are dissolves for no reason whatsoever. Okay. I mean, in, a, in the grammar of filmmaking, a dissolve is the passage of time. But there's a bit in Caves of Androzani where it just dissolves for no reason whatsoever. Mm. You know, it's kind of, here's a bag of tricks. Oh, better throw it at the screen. I mean, Caves of Androzani, I like it. Yeah. But I don't love it. No, no, we mentioned this last episode. Yeah. But um, Ben Wheatley, he's a film director. He does low-budget indie films. And with low-budget indie films, directors uh, very often have a tendency to get into showing off because it's a low-budget indie film. Mm. It doesn't get a very big distribution. And you've got to get noticed Mm. in order for it to get a wider distribution. So the director's tend to show off because that's often what you have to do in order to get your film noticed. Well, here you've got a low-budget indie film director who comes with that sensibility, who knows that his own product needs to be noticed, being brought into a television series where it it's not, not going to get noticed. It's going to get watched by... 7 million people mm. or 8 or 9 million people on a Saturday night on BBC One he doesn't need to bring his bag of tricks and that's the amazing thing mm. is that he was intelligent enough or maybe somebody tapped him on the shoulder down in Cardiff and said right this is what you're famous for this is what you do mm. you don't need to just just be yourself but realise that all those things you need to do on your indie films you don't actually need to do them on Doctor Who. And I get the impression that he's kind of toned it down and used everything only in service to the story. Because mm. a lot of it was quite subtle. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of effects in that episode. Mm. And I'm not just talking about the space battle at the start, which was pretty spectacular. It was incredible, yeah. <laughs> and longer than I expected it to be. Yeah. But... um you know, the, a lot of the other effects in the episode were, once they were inside the Dalek, you know, looking up mm. at things that weren't actually really there mm. and this kind of thing. And it was all quite subtly done. Mm. It was um, it was all in service to the story. You saw only the things you needed to see. And, well, I mean, in terms of Fantastic Voyage or Invisible Enemy, they did a decent job of showing them because, I mean, it's really difficult when you don't actually have enough money to actually build a thousand-foot-high Dalek that you can put your actors inside of, you've got to go to factories and warehouses and stuff and use what's available to show them climbing around inside the Dalek. They did it brilliantly well, Mm. so much so that I think after about two minutes, you turn that part of your mind off and just accept it. Yeah, You're not looking for it anymore. Yeah, until the 80s school program part. Yeah, okay, that's fair (laughs) enough. 
But um, oh, some of the shots—the shot of them when they were first shrunk—and you've got that. Um, oh no, I knew the I'd tweezers. Forget. Yeah, I've forgotten the name of that effect. Uh, oh, it's but when the tweezers head. pick the capsule up, yeah, yeah, it's lovely. It's yeah. a photographic effect where they oh, where them. they're in focus and everything that's around them yeah. is out of focus. Yeah, I can't yeah. Really call it. Um, uh, oh, no, no, you, no, no, you can you buy mean. phones with that effect on now, can't you? It's a lovely effect, actually. Yeah, it is. It's great. And using it in service to the story worked perfectly. Because it did. It did. And also, even... when they were actually miniaturised, that reminded me of the part in um, Fifth Element, where her body's oh, being yeah, rebuilt. Yeah, yeah. Very similar. Hmm. But yeah, that bit where they, the they're actually lasagna. flying, they're floating over the Dalek. The line about lasagna. What was that again? Which, because uh, this was mentioned a lot before, Anne, there's a line about lasagna, which is hilarious, right. uh, which will also make you go, ooh. <laughs> it was when he said, um, when you're being shrunk, keep oh, breathing. Oh, yes, yeah. Because <laughs> you know when you leave says, the film why on. do you keep breathing? He says, when you don't puncture the film on a lasagna, when you yeah. stick it in a microwave. Brilliant. <laughs> don't be a lasagna. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. It was, it was full of lines like that. It but talking great. about Fantastic Voyage, mm. and the, or and or The Invisible Enemy, whichever you want to take as your cue. There are two cues for this episode. Well, kind of three. I mentioned in my review on Starburst, but I didn't say why, Asylum of the Daleks as well. So I'll get that quickly out of the way now. Mm. Asylum of the Daleks is a story in which the main cast are in a contained environment, and it's kind of a maze that they've got to work their way through in order to resolve the plot. And at the end of the episode... It turns out that one of your lead characters is inside a Dalek. Mm. And this Dalek doesn't realise it's a bad Dalek. It thinks it's a good Dalek. Mm. Well, how much of that did we see last night? Yeah, yeah. There's quite a lot of symmetry between those two stories. Mm, yes, yeah, literally, it's literally turned it inside out, hasn't it? In some respects. Yeah. Mm. Now, I don't know whether that was deliberate or coincidence or what. Mm. Pre- pre- presumably coincidence. But I don't think it's a bad thing because it felt like those two stories to me now almost felt like um, complementary to one another. Mm. But the main point is this was Dalek by way of Fantastic Voyage, right? Yeah. yeah. So that gives you something familiar. And actually the line at the end where the Dalek says you are a good Dalek rather than you would make a good Dalek in the mm. Eccleston one, mm. I think I could have lived without that. But, you know, it worked then, it kind of works now. Mm. But the point is, and I, I brought this up a lot in my review, Peter Capaldi, 56 years old, mm. having had two doctors in their 20s, early 30s, bit of a shock to the system for the audience. Mm. When Patrick Trowan became the doctor, they stuck Daleks in his first story because then the audience is focusing on the Daleks as much, if not more, than they are the doctor. And the Doctor gets a chance to establish himself almost by sleight of hand. Mm, mm. Right, modern era, you don't need to do that anymore because the audience at home are as interested in the new Doctor as much as they are anything else. Yeah. Yep. I mean, when Patrick Trout came in, nobody even knew a new Doctor was coming in, really. Mm. So that was all sleight of hand. But now... Peter Capaldi's the new Doctor. Massive thing. Programme that gets six million viewers to announce him, <laughs> or however many million viewers it was. So obviously the first episode is people want to see what Peter Capaldi's like in a part. Right? But in the first episode, that's your post-regeneration, you don't really find out what the character's like until the end. Mm. And when you do, you don't quite get enough 
of that character for it to really bed in. Mm. Yeah. Your problem then is not so much that you need to establish the character by sleight of hand, but that in your second episode, if you don't have something strong enough to counterpoint him, you're not going to watch the story. You're still just going to be watching the character because you want to know what the character's doing. By using the Daleks in the second story, you've given a strong enough counterpoint mm. to your brand new Doctor in order to make the episode not tip the balance too much in one direction or the other. Mm. Mm. So, uh, you know, that could have been lost. Like it was in The Beast Below. Mm. Beast Below wasn't strong enough. No. And the story became lost in it just being Matt Smith's first proper episode as the Doctor. Yeah, yeah. So Beast Below failed. Yeah, yeah. I think it did. It was a failure. But Into the Dalek, absolute opposite. Well, you're basically sticking like a negative mirror in front of the Doctor, aren't you? You you get the measure of a Doctor by how he reacts to his arch enemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose. And yes, and but also, of course, having the Daleks on screen... Mm means that your attention is never wholly on the Doctor, but on what the Dalek or Daleks is or are doing at the same time. Yeah. So, that's why we're on familiar territory. And on the fantastic voyage thing is, again, it's just such an obvious and a strong idea, and mm. everybody does it. You get shrunk, you go inside. Mm. You know, other series have done it, and it's been in the movies, and it's been in Doctor Who before on a number of occasions. You know, not just the invisible enemy. It's an obvious idea, but because it's a really strong idea and it's a really fantastical idea. Mm. So you've got the Doctor on one side, the Daleks on the other side, counterpointing each other, but you've also got this really strong idea in the middle, which kind of absorbs them both into it, mm. so that the whole thing becomes a really nice trifle. Yep. You know, in honour of Lee, who's not here. <laughs> but then... The temptation is not to do anything new. Okay. For a writer, the temptation is to say, okay, I've got three really strong elements here. That will sell it. Yep. And the brilliant thing here is, and I actually texted him and asked him, it's Phil Ford because there's two writers named on this, on the screen. Yeah. It's Phil Ford. Yeah. Who, and I think this is a stroke of genius. You know, when we first started talking half an hour or so ago, I said, in terms of the writing, you have certain expectations yeah. and you don't want to be let down. You don't necessarily want your expectations to be exceeded, but you certainly don't want to be let down by them. But you'd like at least for them to be met. Mm. Right. We know this Dalek's gone good. We know we're going to find out why the Dalek's gone good. Mm. And okay, I made a glib comment about the sonic screwdriver fixing the Dalek earlier but the point is the Dalek has seen the birth of stars mm. and that has become a suppressed memory in other Daleks because and this is brilliant this is so brilliant because it's logical mm. and you know the Daleks as much as they're not quite robots they do work on logic mm. it's so logical to see the birth of stars and understand that whatever you do to destroy life, mm. life will always come back. Yeah, It's a little bit of genius. It's one of those obvious ideas <laughs> that unless you actually see it on the screen, yeah. nobody's ever going to think of. No. And Phil Ford has based his story 
around this idea. Mm. And it works through the rest of the story as well. It's mm. not just you get to that point and that idea gets spoken out loud and then forgotten about. It works through the rest of the story. Mm. It's a part of what that story is. It's brilliant. And then, not to be outdone, Stephen Moffat comes in at the end of the episode and writes that line of dialogue where the Doctor says, you know, I could have been anything, but it was meeting the Daleks not long after I'd started travelling that made me realise what I needed to be. Mm. And that was the Stephen Moffat line. And that is just as brilliant because yeah. it's Stephen Moffat's sleight of hand. One line of dialogue to explain something that you never realised needed explaining across the last 50 years. It is absolutely but that makes perfect right. sense. Yeah, it does. It so does. Phil Ford has taken a story idea that makes absolutely perfect sense. The Dalek realises that no matter how long, how widely and how destructively the Daleks keep at it against mm. the universe, mm. the universe will always spring up and come back at them, you mm. know? Mm. And the Dalek realises that they might as well just not bother. Yeah. So he might as well just stop them from doing it. Mm. And it's perfectly logical. Mm. It's absolutely brilliant. And mm. it's what makes the episode, mm. I think. I love this idea that it suppresses the positive thoughts. Um, yeah, for me, that was the one where my expectation was met rather than exceeded. Yeah. The yeah. bit where... No, I, that's a great idea. But the bit where Clara's... You know, she gets sent off. Yeah, it was like do... some weird game show, wasn't it? Yeah, she gets yeah. sent off to do something brilliant and she realises the lights are out. It's obvious <laughs> and it works. Yeah. And it, I mean, but it meets your expectations. It's more rather. symbolic than it is. Yeah. yeah it... It's kind of, it's kind of what it needed to be. Yeah. But when she was going up there, I was just thinking to myself, I hope he doesn't disappoint me with this because this could be something really <laughs> crap. Yeah. Yeah. Because it could have been something that's not logical. That doesn't make any sense. Mm. You know, so often in Doctor Who, it's so tempting to write a story where when you get to the point of resolution, you come up with something that hasn't been seeded through the story. And when I say not been seeded through the story, I don't mean just not that it's not been mentioned, mm. like a Chekhov's gun, because it's so easy to go back to page three of your script and mention something in the dialogue that you're going to need on page 57. Mm. That's not writing it into your script properly. It goes back to what I like what I said about 42. If you're going to use something in your script, it needs to be there when you start so it becomes the foundation of the story yeah. rather than something you bolt on afterwards. Yeah. And all these things last night, they're not bolted on afterwards. They're absolutely in the foundations of the story. The bit like you say, where Clara needs to turn off the lights, is a bit like a game show because that just needed to be fast and yeah. needed to get yeah. the job done. But because it was perfectly sensible and logical, it didn't feel like a disappointment because when she was on her way up there, I'm thinking, oh my God, she's just going to find a big red button on the wall and press it and everything's <laughs> going to be all right. Yeah. You know, not literally, but it could have been something like that. Mm. But mm. it wasn't. It was sensible. Yeah. And so, you know, it didn't let me down. No, and you just a few minutes earlier had such a brilliant idea that was so fundamental to the story, and then a few minutes later, Stephen Moffat throws in that idea about where the Doctor came from, mm. you know, back in 1963. That was also so logical to the series that you know it all fit together beautifully. Yeah, yeah, it was. It really was. Um, 
Of course, you've got Stephen Moffat doing this thing of calling the Dalek Rusty. It's back to the handles thing, isn't it? It's, it's, uh... Well, Rusty is Rusty Davis's nickname. Oh, is it? Yeah, did you not know that? No. Oh, no, that was a big in-joke for Rusty Davis. Oh, is it? Mm. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm assuming so. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought he'd have called it Rusty <laughs> and not been thinking about Rusty <laughs> Davis when he did. Oh, it was lovely watching this episode. I, I had uh, insomnia last night, and I watched it about 3 o'clock this morning just on a laptop, on my lap with headphones on. And then I watched it just before you arrived again with my five-year-old daughter. Oh, did you not get to see it last night when it was on then? No, no. Ah, okay. No, I was watching Lee uh, pretending to be someone out of Firefly at a cabaret night. Oh, dear. Yeah. Right, let's move on. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think now. Is there anything else in the episode that we need to bring up? I think we pretty much talked about... I think so. I just think it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous, and, and Peter Capaldi's performance, you know, he's absolutely nailed how he is as a doctor, I think, Oh, already. yes. I, this is the other thing I needed to mention. After last week, when we talked about the new Doctor's character, yeah. and whether... And it was nailed this week, because he asked Clara, tell me, am I a good man? Any one of the other previous Doctors, maybe William Hartnell accepted back mm. in the first series... You wouldn't have even had to think about the answer to that question. No, no. And to be honest, when it was asked in the episode, I don't think it quite works because you don't see what Peter Capaldi does in that episode before he asked it. Mm. And she has no reason to say, I don't know. Mm. Except that maybe she's not got used to this new incarnation yet and might not know what the new incarnation's going to be like. Mm. Because when she properly answers the question, it's at the end of the episode when she does know. Mm. But it's he... But he says, am I a good man? And she says, I don't know. And then, obviously, the proper answer is, but I think you try to be, and that's what counts. Mm. But we saw, last week in Deep Breath, Peter Capaldi being a doctor who's prepared to kill in cold blood. Right. Did we? Where he offers half-faced man a glass of whiskey Mm. and says, right, I'm going to offer you a glass of whiskey because I'm about to kill you and I want to be polite when I do it. So here's a glass of whiskey, right? Which is all symbolic Mm. because obviously he's half-faced man and A, he won't drink whiskey. Yep. As we've seen in the restaurant scene earlier, they don't eat and drink. No. Clockwork droids. And B, he's not going to kill him because he's not a living creature. Mm. Even though he does get to go to heaven at the end of the episode, which I suppose we'll come to in a second. Mm. Whatever heaven is. But whatever heaven is, it's not a receptacle for living beings if uh, clockwork robots can go there. Point being, even though we don't know at the end of Deep Breath whether Half-Faced Man jumped or was pushed, so we don't know whether Capaldi actually did do it or not, we saw a doctor who was prepared to kill in cold blood mm. premeditatively. Yeah. Because when Matt Smith does it in Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, it's not premeditated. No. It's the only available solution to him because the spaceship's about to blow up with them in it. Yeah. The only thing he can really do is put the bomb in the shuttle instead and blow up Solomon instead. Mm. Okay. So it's not premeditated. Does it? on the spur of the moment, because it's the only thing that can save them. In deep breath, he's premeditated. He's waiting for Half-Faced Man to come in. 
He offers him a glass of whiskey, tells him he's going to kill him. And even though it's a robot, you know, the message is there. This is a doctor who does things in cold blood. Mm, I think it's also the fact that it's, it's symbolic that he's treating him like a human. No, 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 no. Where I'm going with this... All right, go on. Into the Dalek. Yeah. The bit where the three soldiers, one of them does something. I can't remember what it is now off the top of my head, but mm. one of the soldiers does something that brings the antibodies Oh, out. yeah, yeah. No, he fires a... Yeah. He fires something into the wall, doesn't he? Yeah, and, uh, that's right. Right. And the doctor says... And everybody's panicking, and the doctor says... Take this pill. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. Yeah. And this guy trusts him. Mm. And you can see it on his face. It's mm. well directed. Mm. And it's all in the way they look at each other. Yeah. And the doctor absolutely convinces him that he's done something spectacular mm. and unexpected mm. that's going to save the day. And then he doesn't. And then they say, I thought you'd done something spectacular and unexpected to save the day. And he says, no, it was too late for him, but I've saved us instead. Mm. That's very cold-blooded. It is. This is a cold-blooded There's doctor. also the fact that he looks like the third Chuckle Brother. And I'm convinced he is. does. No, no, the, the, the actor. Who played the one who died? Yeah. A way to step on my point there, Simon. <laughs> this is a cold-blooded doctor. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. This is Stephen Moffat again giving a little twist. Same ingredients. Mm, mm. Like I say, Matt Smith. And he's not the only one mm. who's killed in cold blood before. Mm. But so you take the same ingredients, but you cook them after a different fashion, mm. and it becomes part of Peter Capaldi's character that he can do things. It's also part of his alienness, though, isn't it? If you think about Matt Smith, then his his alienness was the fact that he didn't know how to dance, and he, you know, he when he was cooking in um, in Craig's flat and all that sort of thing. There was all that that strange stuff going on. You know, very childlike well, that kind of thing. But this is completely, completely flipped on its head. So Capaldi's alienness is this this kind of disconnection from... But it's Pyramids and Mars. It's early Tom Baker. Is it? It's Robot, mm. where Tom Baker looks at a squashed dandelion. Mm. And, you know, that dandelion had as much right to live as any of the people the giant yeah, robot's killing. Yeah. And it's Pyramids and Mars, where... Sarah Jane Smith says to him, everybody in this house has died, don't you care? Mm. And the doctor says, no, I can't afford to care about them. I've got bigger things to think of. That's yeah, what's yeah, that line, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, she's my carer. She cares yeah. so that I don't have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Which is another obviously glib line well, of dialogue back, there was, in a Stephen there, Moffat I don't story. think we pointed out in Deep Breath last week that um, there was that bit, you know, where he leaves Clara. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I... Again, that's I think that's going to be a thing because that is again something that Tom Baker Doctor would do. That's I mean it's not quite, but that's Ark in Space where him and Harry are off having an adventure and Sarah Jane's in mortal danger. Mm, mm. You know, it's I said last week that I think Matt Smith channeled Patrick Troughton, mm. but it wasn't an impersonation. He was just using the best bits of Patrick Troughton to bring out the Matt Smith. Mm. And I said last week that I think Peter Capaldi's got the same thing going on with Tom Baker. Mm. And this kind of reinforces it because these are Tom Baker-esque characteristics that are coming to the fore in this Doctor. Yeah, yeah. He's not pompous like Pertwee because I was... I had a horrible fear we were going to get a 
you know, that they were going to yeah, channel. Yeah, no, no, no. There's a vulnerability, turns, isn't there? Yeah. Which is lovely. And really which, nice. again, was in Tom Baker's portrayal, especially mm. in those oh, first yeah, yeah. three he, series. Yeah, where he questions himself. Yeah. So, so was there something wrong with what I just said? Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's lovely. Really and nice. with Tom Baker, in, in, especially early on, because by the time you get to the end of Tom Baker, it's like he walks into the room and he says, right, I'm going to solve this. Mm. And... You know, the Stephen Moffat doctors will say, I'm going to solve it. They they walk into a room and say, right, there's a problem here. I'm going to solve it. Mm. But they'll puncture that by having a character say, how? And the doctor will say, I haven't got the foggiest idea, but something will come to me. It always does. Yeah, yeah. But Tom Baker, in those first three series, through a lot of those adventures, for three episodes, you had no idea what he was going to do because he had no idea what he was going to do. Yeah, yeah. And he was flying by the seat of his pants. Mm. And Patrick Trout too. Mm. It, this, all, this is all very Stephen Moffat. The Doctor might say at the start of a story, whatever problem you've got going on here, I'm going to sort it out. Mm. But he's, he's bluffing. Yeah. You know? And both of those Doctors now, Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi, will bluff their way into a situation mm. like that. Mm. But it's still... Reacting to what's going on around them. It's huge fun. Yeah. It really is. It's great. I think it's fantastic. I'm really excited for the rest of the series. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I, yeah, I am literally excited. I've been excited by this episode and that's why I've got such a positive response to it. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to make of next week's. No, I have very, I'm, tell you what I am going to do is I'm going to sit down and I, my nephew's coming across and I'm going to try and persuade my, uh, sister-in-law to let my, my nephew, I think he's 10, my 10-year-old nephew to watch it because he's never been able to watch one without us watching it first. But I think next week's is going to be all right. I should and my daughter so. as well. It doesn't look very dark. It doesn't look very dark. No. I, I, think I hate the title. Oh, it's dreadful. It is. Worst episode. Do you know what's wrong about ever. the title? I think, And this episode of the podcast will probably go out after the episode's been on so people will know as soon as they yeah. hear me say this whether <laughs> I was right or not. Yeah. But what's wrong with that title is that the title came before the story. Mm. So it's not that they came up with a good story and gave it that title. Yeah. They came up with that title and mm. said, they said, let's do a Robin Hood story. Yeah. Oh, I know what would be good if we called it Robot of Sherwood instead of Robin of Sherwood. Oh, oh you're going to have to put Wasn't a robot robots? in it then. Robots of Sherwood. Everybody point. thought it was Robots of Sherwood. Which, which, yeah. I think that's got to be an error because when the story was written, it either has one robot in it yeah. or it has lots. Yeah, yeah. So at no point did it ever have lots of robots in it and now it's only got one. And it's Mark Gatiss, isn't it? Yeah. So we'll see. Hmm. Do you know Mark Gatiss' thing is that he pastiches everything, but he never brings anything of himself to any of his stories? No, no. And Which is why Crimson Horror worked, because he knew, he knew yeah. it inside out. And because, yeah. because he didn't, because he didn't need to or bother to try and bring some, in the way that in The Idiot's Lantern, you've got the story about the father and the son, mm. which feels really awkward throughout the entire episode. Mm. Because it's not pastiching anything. Mm. And so Mark Gatiss is not the natural person to write that in. So it doesn't feel natural. It feels, clum feels clumsy. Mm. But when Mark Gatiss is just doing pastiche, when he doesn't have to sort of shoehorn those elements in, he's fine. Yeah, yeah. So maybe next week's episode, 
it's will like be Crimson Horror rather than Idiot's Lantern. That point I made last year, week that that um, that thing they say about writers that you should always write about what you know, and he obviously does write about what he knows, um, and he really knows about that whole Victorian horror thing, and it worked in worked brilliantly. I'd like to see him write something personal. I don't think he can, and that's the point. Mm. Do you know? He never... Nothing he's ever done as... League of Gentlemen was 100% pastiche from start to finish. Mm. You know, that... Um, what was that three-part horror thing he did, late-night thing, about four years ago? Mm. Mm. Sherlock. Mm. It might be Sherlock Holmes brought into the modern day, mm. but it's still entirely pastiche. Of all sorts of genre things. Yeah, yeah. It's not, there's nothing in it that, I mean, and they pastiche, and what they do brilliantly with Sherlock is that they, because Stephen Moffat is first and foremost a writer of sexually motivated sitcoms, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Mm. But so there's a huge element of that in Sherlock, mm. not necessarily the sexually motivated part, although that does come into it, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The, all the sort of character stuff in Sherlock. And I think this is what Stephen Moffat does, is that he does bring his personal stuff into it so that the jokes aren't just jokes, but they're actually, they relate to people and proper situations. Yeah. And I think that's what gives his stuff life. But Mark Gatiss, his involvement in Sherlock isn't to bring in that stuff. You know, that's what Stephen Moffat brings to it. And what Mark Gatiss brings to it mm. is the genre pastiche. Yeah, yeah. I I've never seen, I've never seen anything from Mark Gatiss that relates to life. No, no. I've only ever seen things from Mark Gatiss that relate to other TV or other. Yeah, books I've read one of his films. Uh, Vis the Vesuvius Club. I've read as well, and that, again, that's a kind of a a hodgepodge, a melting pot of other of other people's ideas. Yeah, in some respects, yeah, yeah. So, but but, and this sounds like we're ragging on Mark Gatiss. If you do it really well. There's no problem yeah, with that. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, if, that's, because if, if he's Robert good Holmes, at what he does, then... Robert Holmes did that yeah. back in the 1970s, mm. and everybody loves those stories. Mm. You know, nobody complains about the brain that of Morbius because there's not a single original idea in it. No, and and there isn't. Keep saying about Crimson Horror. He proved that he can do it. We just want him to yeah. do it again. And I and I hope next week he will be, be doing it again. Yeah, yeah. Because I think... That little snippet of Robin Hood, if that is Robin Hood, it's, it smacks of men in tights more than... <laughs> yeah. And Errol Flynn, because, you know, Errol yeah, Flynn had that sort of slight campness to it. Yeah. That sort of knowingness to it. Mm. You know, uh, that was the great thing about the 40s, actually. It was before method, mm. and it was before naturalism, and when people would do things with a slight wink to the audience. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and yeah, if it's got that wink to the audience, and if it's got the... And I think it will, because I think Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss are now in sync. Yes. Yeah. I don't think they were at Victory of the Daleks. I don't think Mark Gatiss should ever have been a, the writer who was given Victory of the Daleks to do. Mm. You know, in that first series, Mark Gatiss should have perhaps done... Mark Gatiss could have done the Chris Chibnall story, the Silurian story. Yeah, he Because could. that was... awful lot of that story was pastiche. Mark Gatiss... Could have done it as well as Chris Chibnall did, mm, mm. or whatever. But to put Mark Gatiss on the Dalek story just felt weird. The Spitfires in Space bit, brilliant. Mm. But that's the only Mark Gatiss bit in that story. And the other 40 minutes are like, 
what? Mm. All that personal stuff with the robot at the end was so clumsily handled, mm. but they have to talk him out of blowing up. Mm. You know, it just, it didn't feel natural. No, and I think... It Whereas did. that kind of thing in Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is natural. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I cut you no, off. No, 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 it's fine. I was going to go back to when we were talking earlier about people's expectations of um, Stephen Moffat. It's a shame that the showrunner can't be much like a, a novel writer in that he could use a pen name. And I'd be fascinated to know that if people didn't know Stephen Moffat was carrying on it, and it was just some other name, faceless name. Yeah. Kind of, because... Well, this has come out now, but we know that Stephen Moffat pretty much wrote The Doctor's Wife and Vincent and the Doctor. Oh, right, okay. That's kind of come out now, mm. because both of those writers... I mean, I've said this on the podcast, you know, not to denigrate Neil Gaiman or Richard Curtis, but they've mm. not written Doctor Who, mm. and Doctor Who is, in spite of the fact that Almost everybody who watches it thinks they can do it and thinks they can probably do it better than the people who actually do. <laughs> it's actually a really difficult thing to do to yeah. write Doctor Who. Yeah. And to get all of the facets working. Mm. It's all very well having an idea, but mm. you've got to get it. You, you know, you can have an amazing sci fi idea and you think, yeah, that'd be really cool if that happened. But then you've got all these other, you've got to manipulate the characters, you've got to manipulate emotions. And so with Vincent and the Doctor and. Um, <clears throat> the Doctor's Wife, presumably Stephen Moffat, had the kind of document that we always saw with Russell T. Davis, where a germ of an idea comes from him. Mm. He gives it to the writer, and the writer brings what he has to it. Mm. And then it comes back to Stephen Moffat. And with both of those stories, with the Neil Gaiman one, and with the Richard Curtis one, you can see a lot of Neil Gaiman in the Neil Gaiman one, yep. and you can see a lot of Richard Curtis in the Richard Curtis one. So I'm not denigrating those writers in any way whatsoever. No, no. But to actually take those ideas and put them into a 45-minute format for Doctor Who, Stephen Moffat apparently had to do an awful lot of rewriting to make them both work in the 45-minute format. Mm. So I'm not saying that the brilliance is necessarily Stephen Moffat's, but distilling the brilliance into a 45-minute television program, mm. that alchemy, yeah. if you were, yeah. that process... Yeah. That was Stephen Moffat. So there you go. It's there's adaptation, a... isn't it? Essentially. So there's an example of Stephen Moffat mm. seeing, well, in a way, seeing other people getting the kudos for hard work that he's put in. Mm. Which is perhaps why he's had his name put onto some of the episodes this year uh, alongside people like Phil Ford. Mm. Because he didn't do it with Mark Gatiss, I noticed. But then, like we say, if Mark Gatiss is in sync with Stephen Moffat now, he wouldn't have needed to. No. But yeah, I think maybe because people were winning awards for things that Stephen Moffat had written, <laughs> kind of, that makes you kind of think, well, couldn't I put my name on it as well? Mm. Just mm. to make sure. A bit. It depends. It's a mutual thing. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Phil Ford didn't turn around to him and say, I think you should have your name on this as well. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, as well, I think, and especially with this episode, Into the Dalek, I think something slightly different <coughs> happened anyway. Because with Russell T. Davis, he had that document where he had ten stories, mm. and he had a nugget of an idea for each of those ten stories. And he would say, okay, Dalek's in Manhattan. Mm. Gives the idea to somebody and tells them, right, Dalek's in Manhattan, you write a story. Mm. And so, perhaps... Well, very likely, in fact, Stephen Moffat said to Phil Ford, want to go inside a Dalek? Mm. 
So invisible enemy meets Dalek. Mm. What can you do with that? And Phil Ford says, okay, this is what I can do with that. Mm. And Stephen Moffat says, yeah, that's very nice. Now go and write it. But because this is also Peter Capaldi's first proper go after the post-regeneration, so presumably Stephen Moffat had a much bigger hand because he wanted to get the Peter Capaldi character right. Mm. So probably the idea was Moffat's. The story was um, Ford's and the plot was Ford's. Mm. You know, the order in which things happen or the way in which things happen. But then the gloss presumably was, well, between the pair of them, but Stephen Moffat taking a much closer hand to make sure, because for example, you can't necessarily imagine, unless he'd been told to, prior to actually sitting down to write the episode, you can't imagine Phil Ford writing that bit where the Doctor throws the pill to that soldier and says, right, he was beyond help, but I've saved us. I don't know. It may be as clean cut as the fact that Stephen Moffat covered the Danny Pink stuff, because that was a fairly hefty chunk of the episode. Oh no, because we know that Stephen Moffat wrote the line about the Daleks. Okay, okay. But what I'm saying is, Phil Ford wouldn't have... I don't think... I might be wrong. No. He might text me in half an hour and correct me. But I don't think <laughs> Phil Ford would have written the line, written that scene, written that action, mm. where the Doctor cold-bloodedly fails to save somebody. Mm. Premeditated. You know, fails to save somebody. Yeah. Doesn't even bother trying. Yeah. Because generally speaking, if somebody's in danger, we see the Doctor at least make an attempt... But he doesn't. He very deliberately doesn't save this person. But also, it's not just that he doesn't save him. It's that he deceives him into doing something that will save everybody else. Yeah. It's kind of selfish. Yeah. And it's premeditated. Yeah. And it's cold. Mm. And I don't think Phil Ford would have written quite that thing. Phil Ford might have written that there was a, an, something accidental about the way this guy died that mm. might have saved the others. Mm. And the Doctor says, phew, that was lucky that happened. But he wouldn't have written the Doctor. No, he kind of um, balances it up with the uh, the woman towards the end where she takes the decision to sacrifice herself. To uh, that, yeah. kind of, that kind of balances it all out, that where well, she takes that's... the decision. And that <clears throat> kind of teaches the Doctor in some respects, doesn't Well, the it? first one foreshadows the second one because yeah. it's having seen the first one that causes the woman to make that decision for herself yeah. because she knows, you know, what the parameters of what possible mm. are. So, yeah, that's a decent piece of writing. That's a great piece of writing. Mm. But all I'm saying is I think Moffat, you know, I think Moffat had more of a hand in it because because you couldn't have had that last bit if you hadn't have had the first bit. And I don't think, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't think Phil Ford would have put that in because it's so much against the character of the Doctor we've had since the series came back. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't imagine Matt Smith or David Tennant or Christopher Eccleston even doing that. No, no. So, you know, he had to have been told, this is what the Doctor's character is now. Mm. So Moffat definitely had more to do with this episode mm, mm. and I think probably then is it episodes 5 and 6 that I've also got his name on I don't know I but don't presumably know. the same thing's going on there but because all these episodes are being written before anybody obviously gets to see what Peter Capaldi's like and so before anybody gets to know that this is what his character is mm. so the showrunner has to take a heavier hand and I think the evidence him having his name on screen that's the evidence 
of the fact that Moffat's had to, you know, have a closer hand. And I think what's facilitated this is the fact that there were only two episodes made last year because that gave Stephen Moffat the extra time to be mm. able to to be able to change the Doctor's character because you can't change the Doctor's character unless you've got the time to do it because mm. the number of writers you're bringing in, yeah. you can't give them that message. Mm. It's not something you can really say. There must have been a, a, more than one occasion where he sat down with Peter Capaldi and they discussed how that Doctor was going to play. It must be. I Yeah, I think so. Mm. Unless he will mellow later on, but I don't, I don't I'm know. not sure he will. I don't think he will. He does have a mellow side. I mean, obviously. Oh, yeah, he's a very rounded doctor. Mm. He's not, by these things that we're talking about, and mm. not by any means all of his character. Mm. And also, he's quite a timid doctor yeah. in many yeah. scenes as well. It's yeah. quite his physicality is quite timid. Yeah, it's quite surprising mm. to see how shy of throwing himself in he can be. Mm. Which, and. You know, and it, but it, and this could be in lesser hands, and I'm talking both writer and actor. This could be something where you say, well, it just doesn't fit together. It's not a character. But we could be in Colin Baker territory, couldn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. But we're not. We're in Moffat and Capaldi territory. Mm. And I think it's brilliant. I yeah. think it takes what I've loved the last five years, four years, whatever it is, with Matt Smith. Absolutely loved it. And I think Moffat and Capaldi have taken something that, my personal opinion, I think the last four years have been my favourite era of Doctor Who. Mm. Mm. More or less with the Hinchcliffe era, but I think they've been my favourite era of Doctor Who mm. the last four years. And I think they're, I don't think they've quite done it yet, but I think they're showing signs that this year, and hopefully next year, if it's the same again, mm. they're just going to go beyond that even. Yeah, yeah. I do... I. I've seen some comments online uh, with people saying, "Oh, it's it's already better than anything." That's... And ironically, like you say, it's it's people who have been very critical of Stephen Moffat before, but they're sort of saying, yeah. it's, it's so much better than it was with Matt Smith. He's so much better than Matt Smith." And I just think, it's, does it does it have to be better? It's different, and it's not even that different. It's, it's not just, really. Yeah, it's just the way the ingredients are being cooked. As you say, like yeah. I said. All the components are there, but it's just quite yeah, how they Yeah, it's just together. a little twist in it's the it, tone of it. It's a little bit more risk involved because the Doctor isn't necessarily that likeable. He's he's not got the Matt Smith baby face. No. You've, you've got to like him from the inside. Which and is, he's got a weird kind of... He's got a weird kind of charm and a weird kind of accessibility yeah. because those timid bits are so much in character with the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. Because it all feels like the same person. So he's kind of, he's like, and again, this goes back to Tom Baker, he's like the guy who charms you mm. even though he'd le happily leave you for dead if there was yeah. something more important to do <laughs> instead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Should we go to a couple of emails? Yeah, we're, we're not going to talk about again. Missy or is somebody mess mentioning Missy there? Oh, no, I don't know. I've not read out hey, of these emails. Here's a really... This is a vague observation. But if Clockwork Blokey threw himself off so he took his own life, the second soldier, she gave her life. Oh, maybe Missy's only collecting people who sacrifice themselves. Maybe. Oh, that's an interesting thought, one that hadn't struck me. Mm. And that means we will get a resolve to that last scene in Deep Breath where we don't know whether he fell or was pushed. Possibly. So, oh, mm. that's an interesting thought, Simon. Who knows? I wasn't expecting anything 
intelligent from you this evening. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ian Martin says, So far, I would give each episode of Series 8 a score of 6.5 out of 10. I'm just looking at Simon now as if to say, what? I know. He's going to explain himself, though. He says, It's a lot to like, but an awful lot that hasn't gripped, stunned or amazed me. Parts of the script for Into the Dalek were dazzling, but some were badly clunky, and the central idea wasn't half as good or original as it was built up to be. See, I don't agree with him there. But... Do you know what? I didn't check any spoilers or anything like that. All I had was the title, so it didn't disappoint me. So steer clear. If if that's how it affects you, um, without patronising you, you're obviously a very intelligent man. Oh, you mean because you think you read the script first because you just mentioned script? I don't, I don't think you did. I don't know. No, I'm just saying. Um, what well, he was saying, it was it was built up to be this amazing idea, but I wasn't aware it was built up as anything because. It, I oh, clear I don't think all. he meant it quite that literally. Oh, okay. I did, but maybe I don't know. I just mean you know when you get to. Uh, you, what your idea of an episode was, even as it unfolds, oh, okay. sometimes. Oh, okay, yeah, fair Because you come to it with no expectations. Yeah. And as the story starts, because I've found this before. Yeah. Sometimes when a story starts, you'll think, oh, I know where they're going with this. And when they don't, you kind of... It's funny how you detect that, because you were saying about that point where they went up to the, um, they went up to the cortex, didn't they? Or they, they went up to the memory. They climbed mm. back up to the memory uh, module. And I almost detected there was going to be a lull in the substance of the story. But there wasn't, as you say. But I almost detected that. Yeah, it felt like they were about to disappoint you, didn't they? Yeah. And they didn't. No. And they didn't surprise you in quite the same way as they no, did some of the other stuff. Right, yeah. But and it was possibly satisfying. Possibly talking the same thing, yeah. Anyway, he says, well, the next episode coming from Mark Gatiss, I can't help feeling that for me personally, this is the weakest start to any series of New Who, and I really hope it goes up a gear very soon. Do you remember Series 5, where the second episode was Beast Below and the third one was Victory of the Daleks? Mm. This is much better than that. It was. It much was. better. Yeah. Um, Jayco is even better than she was last year, but despite flashes of dark malevolence, Capaldi isn't quite nailing it yet. We spoke about Jennifer Coleman last week. Yeah. About how I think... Because people are saying now, oh, she's finally got a character this year. And I'm thinking, no, it was always there. Mm. It's just that because we have this slightly different variation in the tone, mm. it's kind of... It's, last year it was something that was there but was slightly buried in what was let's going not, on around yeah, it. She was the impossible girl. So uh, that again, you're making that point that the story was overpowering the per the person, yeah. really. But the person now was still we're getting there. the meat of the person. Yeah. Oh. And it's anyway. always been there. Yeah. It's just that when that whole impossible girl thing was going on, people weren't looking at the character, they were looking at the story. Yeah. And and the scenes with Danny Pink in this episode were charming. Yeah, they highlighted it so yeah, much yeah. better. Um, <coughs> Capaldi isn't quite nailing it yet. His performance needs to go up a notch because he's gamely occupying the screen rather than owning it like Matt Smith did. More intensity, more electricity. At times last night, I actually found myself wondering if the show might benefit from having a year or two away to recharge. I hope that 99.99% of people are hugely loving Series 8 and that my reservations are merely byproducts of heat stroke. <laughs> Plus, with the time difference to Dubai, I am, of course, watching these episodes late at night and when I'm knackered. But it's not just clicking for me yet. Hope you're all well. 
seeing as he's in Dubai, do we actually, do we actually care what he thinks? Oh, that's not fair, Simon. <laughs> well, I can't get it to scroll now. I had it scrolling a minute ago. Use arrow keys. Try the arrow keys. Oh, Is yeah, that that's fine. No, I didn't mean that, Ian, honestly. Um, I don't know. I find it very oh, hard to... Let's be honest. Nothing is going to appeal to absolutely everybody. No, no, absolutely not. And I, I think, I think something which we touched on earlier is that there's a lack of physicality in Peter Capaldi's Doctor, and I've caught him on screen. He's probably thinking he's doing quite a lot because, he, oh, because <laughs> there's my physicality getting in the way. Um, and he, for the benefit of those this... who are listening to us rather than watching us, Simon just more or less knocked his microphone yeah, over. Yeah, He's doing this thing where he stands there, not knowing... The Doctor is not knowing what to do, and he's wringing his hands and things like that. And that's not very interesting on the screen. And certainly if the direction doesn't kind of catch that in the right way, it can look like Peter Capaldi's standing around not doing much. Do you know what? He's also slightly not need. Yeah, yeah, he is. Which kind of... Makes him he, look... he he swings between looking really kind of almost regal and empowered, empowered, to being this funny gawky little man. Yeah, it's yeah, but it all feels natural. It doesn't yeah. feel like um, enforced swings in what he's doing. No, it all no, feels natural, and that's not just the writing and the performance, but that's having a good performer mm. because any performer can make those choices. But a really good actor is the kind of person who can take those choices and make them feel natural, mm. make them flow into one another. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we've got another essay from Miles Northcott. <clears throat> Deep breath. Where's Lee? <laughs> Hello, boys. So I've just seen Into the Dalek, and here are my initial thoughts on it. What a storming start. The Doctor's rescue of Journey Blue, that name has to have alternative connotations, was superb. Capaldi's acting and characterisation make the Doctor seem more alien than he has been since early Hartnell. Probably unsurprising since his regeneration cycle has been reset. He has effectively been rebooted, so has, to all intents and purposes, been reset to Hartnell. And we are going on that original journey with him again. To quote John Thompson, Nice. Matt Smith should have hung on then. Matt Smith should have hung on. Yeah, waited for another couple of regenerations in order to get the Troughton gig. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, Miles, I liked Journey's uncle. Nice to see that Ian from the Great British Bake Off got immediate work after last week's (laughs) debacle. Was he on the Great British Bake Off? Well, he had a beard and he was Irish. That's about as similar as he gets. Oh, mind you, he had a big conk as well. So, yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Oh, right, it wasn't the actor. No, 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 no. It was somebody who just looked like him. Physically, yeah, and he was Irish. Okay. All right, back to Miles. After Strax, Vastra and Handles, we now have the enigma of a supposedly good Dalek. Naturally, the Doctor was never going to believe that, but similarly, his curiosity was never going to let him ignore it. Actually, we did mention that. Good Dalek. And the Doctor cures it, and it goes back to being what it is. And this is what I meant when I said that it followed through. In yeah. the storytelling, that all the ideas were fundamentally part of the same storytelling. Because when he cures it, and when the Dalek goes back to being what it is, and then when Clara has to put the lights back on, uh, unsuppress its memories, and it's only the unsuppressing of the memories, rather than breaking the Dalek again, that turns it back into the 
good Dalek. Mm. And then there are all those bits about of dialogue about what it means to be a good Dalek. Is a good Dalek one who has hatred? Which is how that Dalek sees the Doctor as being a good Dalek. Yeah. Because he has hate. What an intellectual script. Absolutely, yeah. There's a lot of stuff Essentially, here. the Dalek is a hate machine. The way it's presented, all this stuff, feels natural and feels like the kind of thing that you can throw on the TV mm. on a Saturday mm. night. But if you took out the fact that there was time travelling and spaceships and monsters and mm. soldiers and shooting, if you took all that out and took all these story elements, this is quite philosophical stuff is, that they're getting into it's here. It's quite analytical on the Dalek side of things, which, you know, it has been... I don't, yeah, there hasn't been a Dalek story quite like it or worked like it since, as you said, Dalek. Well, no. Do you know what? I think Daleks in Manhattan does it, but I think people yeah, discount that because... Yeah, it doesn't... Yeah, because it comes across as a bit silly. Yeah, but I think it covers some of the same area. Yeah. I yeah. think Daleks in Manhattan is hugely underrated, actually. Mm. I think there are some bits that let it down really badly, but mm. I think some of Daleks in Manhattan is brilliant. Mm. Mm. And... I really don't know why people hate it quite as much as they do. Mm. I thought it was far superior to some of the stories around it. But, yep. there you go. Yep. Anyway, back to Miles. Where was I? The idea of miniaturising the Doctor and Clara and putting them inside the Dalek was similarly irresistible, and whilst it would have been a nice fanboy touch to include a line relating to the invisible enemy or carnival of monsters, it wasn't essential, and the rest of the sparkling dialogue more than made up for it. The verbal sparring between the Doctor and Clara is as good as anything the show has ever produced and is helping to make this series even better. Having the Doctor heal the Dalek's injury and have it return to type was slightly unexpected, although it really shouldn't have been. The way Nick Briggs changed his inflection to immediately show that the Dalek was back to normal was magnificent. The fight scenes between it and the humans were shot wonderfully and again reminded us all of Dalek, natural I suppose as it was a single Dalek against soldiers, but it showed us yet again that the Daleks are relentless, unstoppable killing machines. The Daleks are scary again, and in the best possible way. Yeah, yeah. This sheer single-mindedness shown here, aligned to the cunning they show, although nowhere near often enough, sadly, puts them back to where they should be, as the Doctor Who monster that inhabits our nightmares. Gretchen's sacrifice was completely believable, and one of the high spots of the episode... You're right, actually, we didn't really talk about that enough, but mm. that scene... Because they followed on beautifully from what went before in the episode. Mm. Again, another example of brilliant writing, because what you're doing is taking your story elements and taking them to entirely logical places, but also those places aren't just logical, but they work in the service of the story as mm. well, mm. in the service of the plot. So they're natural for the characters and for the plot. It's a brilliant piece of writing. Mm. Um Gretchen's sacrifice was completely believable and one of the high spots of the episode and her subsequent arrival in heaven was unexpected and just asks a few more questions as to exactly where that particular arc will take us. Missy is an intriguing character and drip-feeding exactly where... <clears throat> oh no, and drip-feeding is like this is the perfect way to pique our interest. Mm. Another thought, Missy could be short for Mississippi, which is what exactly? Uh, thanks, pie. Miles. No idea yeah. what you're talking about there. <laughs> He's reminded me actually that um, halfway through the episode, when the Dalek suddenly went nasty, I initially thought that it had all been a ruse, and that was, and that 
probably was where my disappointment was coming in because I oh you thought the dialogue was just pretending to be good in order yeah, to yeah in order to get be repaired yeah mm. like in Dalek effectively yeah exactly because the Dalek wasn't pretending and that's probably where my was... disappointment was kind of like oh. Well, it's not as clever as I hoped it was going to be. It's because yeah. if that had happened, it would basically just have been a repeat of the earlier story. It would have, wouldn't it? Yeah. Rather than taking some of the elements of that earlier story and doing something wholly new mm. with it. Mm. Okay, back to Miles. We're nearly halfway through his essay. Visually, audially, and tonally, this new series feels very old school. I loved the sequence where the miniaturized party exited the capsule and was reminded of the Dalek's master plan segment with the Doctor, Stephen and Sarah bouncing around gurning, except this was more sensible and just glorious. Into the Dalek truly was a sensual feast. The music, the slow motion sequences, the fight sequences and explosions, the old clips, all made this one of the very best Doctor Who stories to watch and listen to ever. Actually, yeah, he's absolutely right. <clears throat> I am not a good Dalek, you are a good Dalek, was possibly the most chilling part of the whole story, and Capaldi's reaction was absolutely top draw. Damn, this man can act. Mm. Unlike me, you probably shouldn't have attempted a Dalek impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just very briefly, um, the fight sequences were brilliant. Better than Deep Breaths. I didn't like that fight sequence at all. The fire it just looked chaotic, in... I thought. Mm. The, the, the fire sequence in Deep Breath reminded me of the one in Day of the Moon, with River Song and the silence outside the TARDIS oh, yes. when she's yeah. turning around shooting. Yeah. And it just kind of felt, oh, there's a fight sequence thrown in here because it feels like there ought to be a fight sequence here, yeah, yeah. rather than because anybody's heart was in it. Mm. But the fight sequence in this was more like the one in Dalek, actually, as well, mm. where you just kind of, here's the Dalek, it's relentless. I think somebody had watched Star Wars as well. Yes. How you get it right. Yeah. Which leaves Danny Pink, says Miles. This is the soapy element to this season, and whilst that won't sit well with some, I think we should wait and see where it takes us first. Clearly, it's setting up a confrontation between the Doctor and Danny later on, but quite how that will be dealt with and what the ramifications of it will be is a tad mouth-watering. I found Danny more likeable than I was expecting to, which bodes well. Yeah. <clears throat> and then, no Doctor Who episode is perfect, and this is no exception. How the TARDIS comes and goes at Coal Hill without anyone noticing is stretching credulity <laughs> a bit. Silent mode, maybe? The whole I-don't-like-soldiers ethos of the Doctor comes exactly when Danny arrives. How convenient. Why exactly would a machine have antibodies? Why was there no jolting inside Rusty when it was moving around? And do we now accept that Rusty just swans off when surely it could revert to type again? And why, when it starts hating the Daleks again, does it suddenly become no longer a threat to the humans? But these are all minor points, and we're not here to nitpick. I'll leave that to Lee. Lol, he says. <laughs> Although Lee's not here, so... No, no. Mind you, I did a bit of nitpicking at the start. I have no idea what Lee made of it. I've not spoken to him since. Well, we'll find out. Next week, if he's back next week or yeah, whatever. Yeah, he should be. And when Mark's back, we'll have to get his thoughts on all the Absolutely, episodes. Yeah, he'll have to do a whole episode on his own. Mm. Yeah, he can call it Nerdology. Oh, it's true, yeah. <laughs> Deep Breath, uh, says Miles, was brilliant. Into the Dalek was classic. I predict this one will score very highly in the season surveys this year. I know you guys like scoring episodes. Actually, we don't do that. We did for a while, didn't we? Did we? Mm. Okay. Oh, yeah, because he's been listening back through some old ones. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, he must have been. All right. 
I know you guys like scoring episodes, so do I, far deeper than you yet know, lol. So I'm giving Deep Breath a solid 8 and Into the Dalek a resounding 9.5 on first viewing. I will re-watch all this season and review my scores later. Next stop, Sherwood Forest for what looks like more of a runaround and a change in tone after the last two weeks. Bring it on. Catch you earlier, M. There you go. That mm. was Miles. Oh, uh, yeah. You'd think I'd read his letter, or vice versa. But yeah, I'd give it a 9 out of 10. Not 9.5. This podcast is now twice as long as the episode we've just been talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Yeah, we almost did that last week. It deserves it. Okay. It All right, then. It. Let's score it. Yeah. Well, everybody, I'll do mine first because I've already scored it for the magazine and I'm assuming mm. some people listening to this will have seen that. I gave it a nine. Mm. Uh, two. Exactly the same. A nine. Mm-hmm. I think I think some of the ideas in there would have been worthy of a ten. But some of it was just a little bit clumsy. Yeah. And so I think it, not quite the absolute pinnacle, but it was certainly getting there. Mm. Mm. And like I say, some of that writing and some of the direction as well. Yeah, and the acting... Yeah. So much in that I just episode. Adore that, just so that slow motion bit. I, I adore it. Some that's one of my favourite bits of Doctor Who ever. You know, I hate bit. slow motion in action sequences, but it fit there because of where it was and what it was. Oh yeah, and it kind of it, it gave us an introduction as them entering into a different. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a transition thing. Yeah, lovely. Right, shall we knock it on the head then? I guess so. There's nothing else to talk about, is there? No, I'm badly in need of a pee in. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. Until next week, I was JR. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon. Hey, stop it. What are you talking about?